often have you heard that science and religion are in conflict and that science presents a real picture of the world while religion is just emotional or fanciful. But can a person who believes in God also embrace science? Today, you'll hear Dr. William Lane Craig give evidence that science and religion are not necessarily at odds. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. Dr. Zuckerman is a scholar, author, and speaker who addresses spiritual and cultural issues of concern to all of us. Dr. Craig joined Pat at the 2011 Hawaii Apologetics Conference, and today we'll bring you part one of his fascinating presentation on science and religion. And by the way, the entire conference featuring Dr. William Lane Craig is available on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. At evidenceandanswers.org, not only will you find the conference, you'll find articles, books, interviews, and past radio shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And now, Pat Zuckerman presents Dr. William Lane Craig with part one of Science and Religion. Very often, I'll be in a conversation that goes something like this. The atheist will say, there's no evidence that God exists. And I'll say, gee, I'm really surprised you'd say that. I I can think of at least five reasons that God exists. Oh yeah, like what? Well, God's the best explanation for the origin of the universe. God is the best explanation for the fine tuning of the universe for intelligent life. God is the best explanation for the existence of objective moral values and duties in the world. God is the best explanation for the historical facts concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And God can be personally known and experienced. So I think there's very good evidence for God's existence. And even that, just listing the arguments, blows away over half of the atheists because they've never met a Christian who has any reasons for believing in God's existence. So if you're even able to just list the arguments from memory like that, you will find yourself well-equipped to deal with half of the atheists, I think, that you run into. And if you can actually then give them the premises from memory uh, and and defend them, you will be well-equipped to deal with 95% or more of the atheists that you encounter. So there's tremendous power in mastering these arguments and having them ready at your disposal when called upon to give a reason for the hope that is in you. We want to talk in more detail about the question of the relationship between science and religion or theology. Back in 1896, the president of Cornell University, Andrew Dixon White, published a book entitled A History of the Warfare of Science with Theology in Christendom. And under White's influence, the metaphor of warfare as a description of the relationship between Christianity and science became very widespread during the first half of the 20th century. The culturally dominant view has come to be that science and Christianity are not allies in the quest for truth, but rather adversaries. And this culturally dominant view has even been absorbed, unfortunately, by Christians. For example, a few years ago, I had a debate with a philosopher of science at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, Canada, on the question, are science and religion mutually irrelevant? And when I walked onto the campus, I was dismayed to see that the Christian students sponsoring the debate had advertised it with large banners and posters proclaiming science versus Christianity. And you see, the students were just perpetuating that warfare mentality 
that Andrew Dixon White had proclaimed over a hundred years ago. What has happened, however, during the second half of the 20th century is that historians and philosophers of science have come to realize that this supposed history of warfare is a myth. As Thaxton and Percy in their book, The Soul of Science, have emphasized, for over 300 years, from the birth of modern science in the 1500s until the late 1800s, the relationship between science and religion can best be described as an alliance. Up until the late 19th century, scientists were typically Christian believers who saw no conflict between their science and their faith. People like Kepler, Boyle, Maxwell, Faraday, Kelvin, and others. The idea of a warfare between science and religion is a relatively recent invention of the late 19th century, carefully nurtured by secular scholars who had as their aim undermining the cultural dominance of Christianity in Western culture and replacing it with naturalism. That is the view that nothing outside of nature is real and the only way to discover truth is through science. And they were remarkably successful in pushing through their agenda during the first half of the 20th century. But philosophers of science during the second half of the 20th century came to realize that this idea of a warfare between science and theology is a gross oversimplification. White's book is now regarded as a, a bad joke, a biased and one-sided piece of propaganda. Now, some people today will acknowledge that science and religion shouldn't be regarded as enemies, but nevertheless, they think that they should be treated uh, not as friends either. Rather, they would say that science and religion are mutually irrelevant. They're like two non-overlapping circles. They have nothing in common. And sometimes you'll hear slogans like this, science deals with facts and religion deals with faith. This, again, however, is a gross caricature of both science and religion. You see, as science probes the universe, it encounters problems and questions which are philosophical in nature and therefore cannot be answered scientifically, but which can be illuminated by a theological perspective. By the same token, it is simply false that religion makes no claims about the empirical world. The world religions make various and conflicting claims about the nature of ultimate reality, about the origin and character of the universe and man, and they cannot all be true. Science and religion are thus like two circles which partially overlap. And it is in the area of overlap that the dialogue can take place. So during the last quarter century or so, a flourishing dialogue between science and theology has been going on in North America and Europe. In an address before a conference on the history and philosophy of thermodynamics, the prominent British physicist P.T. Landsberg suddenly began to explore the implications of his scientific theory for theology. And he observed, and I quote, 
to talk about the implications of science for theology at a scientific meeting seems to break a taboo. But those who think so are out of date. During the last 15 years, this taboo has been removed. And in talking about the interaction of science and theology, I am actually moving with a tide. Numerous societies were promoting this dialogue, like the European Society for the Study of Science and Theology, the Science and Religion Forum, the Center for Theology and Natural Science in Berkeley, and others have sprung up to uh, foster this ongoing dialogue between science and theology. Especially significant have been the ongoing conferences sponsored by the Berkeley Center and the Vatican Observatory. Prominent scientists like uh, Stephen Hawking and Paul Davies have explored the implications of science for theology with prominent theologians like John Polkinghorne and Wolfhard Pannenberg. Not only are there professional journals which are devoted to the dialogue between science and theology, like Zygon or Perspectives on Science and Christian Faith, but even more significantly, I think, secular journals like Nature or the British Journal for the Philosophy of Science also carry articles on the mutual implications of science and theology. The Templeton Foundation, erected by the late Sir John Templeton, has awarded its million-dollar Templeton Award in Science and Religion to outstanding integrative thinkers like Paul Davies, John Polkinghorne, and George Ellis for their work in science and theology. In fact, the dialogue between science and theology has become so significant in our day that both Cambridge University and Oxford University have established chairs in science and theology. Now, I share all of this simply to illustrate a point. People who think that science and theology are mutually irrelevant or irremediably at odds with each other need to realize that the cat is already out of the bag. And I dare say there's little hope of stuffing it back in again. Science and theology have discovered that they have important mutual interests and important contributions to make to each other. Those who don't like this can choose not to participate in the dialogue if they don't want to, but that's not going to shut down the dialogue or show it to be meaningless. So what I want to do this morning is to explore together ways in which science and theology serve as allies in the quest for truth. I want to suggest six ways in which science and religion are relevant to each other starting with the most general and then becoming more particular. And so these six points are on your outline. Number one, religion furnishes the conceptual framework in which science can flourish. Science is not something that comes naturally to mankind. As the science writer Lauren Isley has emphasized, science is an invented cultural institution which requires a unique soil in which to flourish. Although glimmerings of science appeared among the ancient Greeks and the Chinese, modern science is a stepchild of European civilization. Now, why is this so? It is due to the unique contribution of the Christian faith to European and Western culture. 
As Lauren Isley states, it is the Christian world which finally gave birth in a clear, articulate fashion to the experimental method of science itself. You see, in contrast to pantheistic religions or animistic religions, Christianity does not view the world as divine or as inhabited with spirits, but rather we view the world as a natural product of a transcendent creator who designed and brought it into being. And therefore the world is a rational place which is open to exploration and discovery. Furthermore, the whole scientific enterprise is based upon certain assumptions which cannot be proved scientifically, but which are guaranteed by a Christian worldview. For example, the laws of logic, the orderly nature of the external world, the reliability of our cognitive faculties in knowing the world, and the objectivity of the moral values used in science. And I want to emphasize that science could not even exist without these assumptions. And yet these assumptions cannot be proved scientifically. They are philosophical assumptions, which interestingly enough are part and parcel of the Christian world and life view. And thus religion is relevant to science in that it can furnish a conceptual framework in which science can flourish. More than that, the Christian religion historically did furnish the conceptual framework in which modern science was born and nurtured. Number two, science can both falsify and verify claims of religion. When religions make claims about the natural world, they intersect the domain of science and are, in effect, making predictions, which scientific investigation can then either verify or falsify. Let me give some examples of each. First, some examples of falsification. Some examples are obvious. The views of ancient Greek uh, or Indian religions, that the sky rested upon the shoulders of Atlas, or that the world exists on the back of a great turtle, were easily falsified. But more subtle examples are available too. One of the most notorious examples was the medieval church's condemnation of Galileo for his holding that the earth moves around the sun rather than vice versa. On the basis of their misinterpretation of certain biblical passages, like Psalm 93.1, which says, the Lord has established the world, it shall never be moved, these medieval theologians denied that the earth moved. Scientific evidence eventually falsified this hypothesis, and the church belatedly finally came to admit its mistake. Another interesting example of sciences falsifying a religious view is the claim of several Eastern religions, like Taoism uh, and certain forms of Hinduism, that the world is divine and therefore eternal. The discovery during this past century of the expansion of the universe reveals that far from being eternal, all matter and energy, even physical space and time themselves, came into existence at a point in the finite past before which nothing existed. 
As Stephen Hawking says in his 1996 book, The Nature of Space and Time, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the Big Bang. But if the universe came into being at the Big Bang, then it is temporally finite and contingent in its existence, and therefore it is neither eternal nor divine, as these pantheistic religions had claimed. On the other hand, science can also verify religious claims. For example, one of the principal doctrines of the Judeo-Christian faith is that God created the world out of nothing a finite time ago. The Bible begins with the words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. The Bible thus teaches that the universe had a beginning. This teaching was repudiated both by ancient Greek philosophy as well as by modern atheism, including uh, dialectical materialism, which underlay uh, the Marxist philosophy. And then in 1929, with the discovery of the expansion of the universe, this doctrine was dramatically verified. Physicists John Barrow and Frank Tipler, speaking of the beginning of the universe in the standard Big Bang model, write, and I quote, at this singularity, space and time came into existence. Literally nothing existed before the singularity. So if the universe originated at such a singularity, we would truly have a creation ex nihilo, that is to say, out of nothing. The standard Big Bang model thus implies an absolute beginning of the universe. If this model is correct, then we have amazing scientific confirmation of a theological prediction. Robert Jastrow, who is the head of NASA's Goddard Institute for Space Studies, envisions it in the following way. He says, the scientist has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak, and as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries. But is the standard model correct? Or more importantly, is it correct in predicting a beginning of the universe? Well, the standard Big Bang model will need to be modified in various ways. The theory is based upon Einstein's general theory of relativity. But Einstein's theory breaks down when the universe is shrunk down to subatomic proportions. And at that point, you'll have to introduce subatomic physics, and nobody is sure how this is to be done. Moreover, the expansion of the universe is probably not constant as it is in the standard model. It's probably accelerating and may have had a very brief period of super rapid expansion in the past. But none of these adjustments need affect the fundamental prediction of the absolute beginning of the universe. In fact, physicists have proposed scores of alternative models over the decades since the 1920s. And those that do not have an absolute beginning have been shown over and over again to be unworkable. To put it in a more positive way, the only viable non-standard models are those that involve an absolute beginning of the universe. Now that beginning may or may not involve a initial boundary point, but on theories such as Stephen Hawking's famous no boundary proposal that don't have a boundary point, nevertheless, 
it remains true that the past is still finite, not infinite. The universe has not existed forever, according to these theories, but it came into existence a finite time ago, even if it didn't do so at a point-like singularity. So, in a sense, the history of 20th century cosmology can be seen as one failed attempt after another to avoid the prediction of the standard model of an absolute beginning of the universe. Unfortunately, the impression arises in the mind of lay people that the field of cosmology is therefore in constant turnover uh, with no lasting results. What the layperson doesn't understand is that this parade of failed theories only serves to confirm the prediction of the standard model that the universe began to exist. That prediction has now stood through more than 80 years of incredible advance in both astronomical, uh, uh, observational astronomy as well as creative theoretical work in astrophysics. And thus science has provided a powerful empirical verification of the Christian view that the universe was created out of nothing at some point in the finite past. A second scientific verification of a religious belief is the claim of the great monotheistic faiths that the world is the product of intelligent design. Scientists originally thought that whatever the initial conditions of the universe were, eventually the universe would evolve the complex life forms that we observe today. But during the last 40 years or so, scientists have been stunned by the discovery that a complex and sensitive balance of initial conditions must be given in the Big Bang itself if the universe is to permit the origin and evolution of intelligent life anywhere in the cosmos. In the various fields of physics and astrophysics, classical cosmology, quantum mechanics, and biochemistry, discoveries have repeatedly shown that the existence of intelligent life depends upon a delicate balance of physical constants and quantities. And if any of these were to be slightly altered in the tiniest way, the balance would be destroyed and life would be impossible. In fact, the universe appears to have been incomprehensibly fine-tuned from the moment of its inception for the existence of intelligent life. We now know that life-prohibiting universes are incomprehensibly more probable than any life-permitting universe. How much more probable? Well, the answer is that the chances of the universe being life-permitting are so infinitesimal that it's simply incomprehensible and incalculable. To review some of the statistics I shared last night, PCW Davies has calculated that the odds against the initial conditions of the universe being suitable for later star formation, without which, of course, there couldn't be any planets, is somewhere on the order of one followed by a thousand billion billion zeros, at least. He also estimates that a change in the subatomic weak force by only one part out of 10 to the 100th power would have prevented a life-permitting universe. The cosmological constant, which drives the acceleration of the universe's expansion, must be fine-tuned to one part out of 10 to the 120th power in order for the universe to be life-permitting. All of these constants and quantities must be fine-tuned in this way 
if the universe is to be life permitting. So our minds are simply overwhelmed by incomprehensible numbers. There is no physical reason why these constants and quantities have the values they do. The former agnostic physicist Paul Davies comments, and I quote, through my scientific work, I have come to believe more and more strongly that the physical universe is put together with an ingenuity so astonishing that I cannot accept it merely as a brute fact. Similarly, the late Fred Hoyle remarked, a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with physics. Well, we're out of time again on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucherin, but we'll pick it up there next time as Dr. William Lane Craig continues to discuss science and religion on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucherin. Dr. Craig joined Pat Zucherin as part of the 2011 Hawaii Apologetics Conference, and that conference is available on our website, evidenceandanswers.org. It was a very exciting conference. It featured topics like the existence of God, can we be good without God, the new atheists and their case against God, and God and the problem of evil. Download this conference, and you'll take your study of these crucial topics to the next level. Go right now to evidenceandanswers.org. And we also invite you to support us financially. Your stewardship and giving helps keep Evidence and Answers on this station and keeps Pat speaking all over the world. Today, more than ever, people need biblical answers to their questions about God and His love for us and the evidence to support those answers. So please let us hear from you today. Just click the donate button at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. And thank you so much. I'm Kevin Harris. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next time on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman.